And for this, uh, it would be in John chapter 4. I got to change because I was in Luke. John chapter 4. I'm not going to read the passage because we're on a time crunch here. But you are probably all very familiar with the woman at the well. All right. Father, bless our time together. Please help me to speak clearly and quickly. Help us to focus on what you have to say to us through this very important study on this very unusual woman and her conversation with the Lord Jesus and how he utterly changed her life for not only this life, but for eternity. And now just uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And may your son get all the glory for we pray in his blessed name. Amen. Amen. Okay. In this section, session here, we're going to discuss how the Lord Jesus changed the life of a woman whose name we are not told. Okay? Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church, this is interesting. I grew up in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I, I'm Greek, so if you're Greek, you're Greek Orthodox. And they actually named this woman Fotini. Did you ever know that? Fotini. I didn't know that. Uh, anybody named Fotini? Yeah, like this. And uh, if you're Russian Orthodox, they call her Svetlana. And I just thought that was a little piece of trivia I would throw out there. But you can Google Fotini and you'll see all kinds of pictures of her. You know, they call her Saint Fotini. Anyway, I don't know. I don't think that was probably her name, but who knows. I am calling her Samaritana. And I already explained why, because she was from Samaria and Anna means grace. And uh, she definitely, <laughs> after five husbands and currently in an adulterous relationship, she needed and she received what? The grace of God. As always, it's important to present the setting of uh, anything we study. So we want to look at the setting of her conversation with Jesus. And by the way, this is the, the longest conversation, recorded conversation in the scripture between Jesus and somebody. And it was this Samaritana. The event occurred early in the Lord's ministry, you know, earthly ministry, not early in his life at 40 days, but early in his ministry when his popularity in Judea to the south was increasingly irritating the Jewish religious leaders. Primarily because what did he do when he went suddenly to the temple? In John chapter 2, you know, he cleansed the temple twice, once at the very beginning of his ministry and again at the end. Well, they were very, very upset with him when he cleansed the temple and affected their uh, profiting business there. Um, and so uh, they were beginning to manifest their envious opposition to him. Yet it was not his hour to die, and so he withdrew from Judea to begin his extensive ministry up in Galilee to the north. Now, to get to Galilee in the north from Judea in the south, there was a choice of two routes. There was a direct shorter route, which went right through the heart of Israel's central province, which was called Samaria. See, there was three provinces, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. There was that short route, you could just go straight up. 
There was also the longer detour route around Samaria to get up to Galilee or get from Galilee down to Judea. Most of the religious Jews, actually most Jews, and primarily the religious Jews, such as the religious rulers, would take which route? The longer route in order to avoid being contaminated by the Samaritans who they despised. It's just amazing how much they despised them. However, what did Jesus do? Right, he cut right through all the ignorant, narrow-minded prejudices of people, and he took the route that went right through the very heart of Samaria. It is amazing to me how narrow-minded people can be. You know, I actually knew this lady once who was so narrow-minded she could only wear one earring. <laughs> Actually, John 4, 4 says what? That Jesus must needs go through Samaria. It was a must for him. Why? Because he had a divine appointment with a certain spiritually thirsty woman. And through her, he had another two-day-long divine appointment with the Samaritans of a certain little village called Sychar, which was located a half-mile distance from Jacob's well. Remember Jacob back in the Old Testament? His name was changed to Israel. He wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ. That Jacob had a well, and Sychar was a half-mile from that well. You know what Sychar means? Sychar means drunken. <laughs> not from alcohol necessarily. I don't know. Maybe they were a bunch of drunken Samaritans in Sychar, but it doesn't really mean that they were drunk from alcohol, but drunk as in having a confused state of mind, a mixed mindset, which very accurately describes the Samaritans because they were mixed. They were mixed Jew and Gentile. They were also mixed in their religion because they knew the truth of God from the Pentateuch. See, they only accepted as divinely inspired the first five books of Moses. They disregarded the rest of the Old Testament. But from the first five books, the Pentateuch, you do know about the Messiah. So they believed in the true God, Yahweh, and they believed in his coming Messiah, but they were in a drunken spiritual condition of confusion from a lot of falsehoods and other things that had crept into their version of Judaism. So spiritually, they were drunken. Well, when Jesus and his disciples uh, arrived at this historic well, after their, well, it would be about 35 miles, but it was, they say it was really rough terrain, so it was probably, they had about 50 miles, so that was a long walk. When they finally got to right outside this village of Sychar, they were weary, they were hungry, and that includes Jesus. Why? Because he was 100% human, so this shows his human nature, that he also, like us, got hungry and tired and all of that. So he sat on the wall of the well to rest while his men went into the nearby village to buy some food in nearby drunken nearby Sychar. 
You know, it's funny. Uh, Jesus was often weary in his work, but he was never weary of his work. He was weary, but he was about to get to work, wasn't he, with this woman. Soon, very soon, a lone woman, that means all by herself, <laughs> from the village approached the well to get some water, as Jesus knew she would. That's why he didn't go with the guys. He sat there because he had a divine appointment. This shows us his divine nature. So in this picture, we see his human nature and his divine nature. Um, and notice that John was inspired to tell us, if you look at verse 6, do you have your Bibles open to John 4? Did I say that? John 4. If you look at verse 6, of course, you could look up at my slide there. John tells us this, and nothing is ever by coincidence. It's always purposely. The Holy Spirit inspired John to tell us what time was it? It was about the sixth hour. Now, John used Roman time, so this means it was 6 p.m. And I know you'll read a lot of commentaries that will tell you it was noon. No. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use Jewish time. And if it was the sixth hour for them, it would have been noon. John uses Roman time. And if you study the crucifixion and the trials, you know he did. So this was six at night. It took them a long time to travel about 50 miles. And they get there at six o'clock. Why did the woman come to the well alone? Well, you know... Well, I'm going to say, well, well. Uh, women normally did not go to a well alone because it was dangerous for a woman to be out there by herself. Um, and the, plus, it was the, the time that women would gather, and, you know, that was their social time. They would talk about the news of the day and probably gossip about her. <laughs> um, so she went, she went by herself because she wanted to avoid all the cold shoulders and the sneers of the village women. The, the drunken village women, <laughs> they shunned her. They shunned her. Why? Well, because she'd been married five times, and she was in a relationship with a man who was not her husband. And the implication is he was somebody else's husband. So um, I really don't understand how she went through five husbands, but... <laughs> <laughs> the story there is, remember the, remember the speculation the Pharisees gave Jesus about a woman and they were trying to trick, trip him up about because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But, you know, a woman who had, was it seven husbands? And whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Was it seven? Well, this woman didn't quite meet that. But, and then he said, you know, you do err because, you know, there is no giving a marriage in heaven and all that. All right, but she did have five husbands and she was living with a sixth guy. Well, Samaritana, carrying her empty water pot, noticed the stranger sitting alone on the wall. Of course, as she gets closer, she sees this guy, and she immediately knows that he is Jewish. How would she know he's Jewish? Well, she probably just passed his disciples on the way to town because they just left, and she's coming. And she would know by looking at them that they were Jewish, the features and the clothing and everything else. And I'm sure they didn't even look at her because men weren't supposed to look at women and especially a Samaritan. Um, but she would know by his features and by his dress. He, he dressed probably as a rabbi, you know, in a teacher's clothes. And um, she certainly, certainly did not expect a Jewish rabbi teacher to even look her way because they weren't to make eye contact at all, much less to speak to her. And so when he did, she was genuinely surprised, genuinely, especially when he asked her for a drink. 
is it just not another example of the Lord's great humility that although he is the creator of every single drop of water on planet Earth, that he requested water from the shunned of the shunned. I mean, the Samaritans were despised, and she was a Samaritan who was despised by the Samaritans. So she's about as low as you can get, and a woman to boot. <laughs> and yet, you know, he, he could bring water gushing forth from a rock, as he did with Mount Horeb if he wanted to. In fact, not too long before this scene, he had turned six large vessels of water into what? Into wine. You think he, he could turn, you th well, you know what, if he wanted to, he could have Jacob's well just start bubbling up like a fountain and just go over there and drink it. Um, and yet, <laughs> the omnipotent, all-powerful God-man was physically thirsty. There was another time at the end of his life he was thirsty too, wasn't it? Remember when he said, I thirst on the cross? So he purposely, he's physically thirsty, so he purposely asks a spiritually thirsty woman for a drink. Now, as mentioned, Samaritana was surprised that he even spoke to her, but her shock increased as she realized that he was asking to drink from her vessel. Now, we don't see that in the English, but you do in the Greek, and I'll talk about it when I get to it, but she was stunned because he broke, he just broke three, that's not three, three, I'm getting tired, three cultural barriers of that time. He just broke the sex barrier, the gender barrier, he broke the social barrier, and he broke the Samaritan barrier. He's actually going to break a fourth, so I think that's why I put up four, but we'll talk about that one later, and it's the sipping sharing barrier. But it essentially and you're just going to hate this. Women are going to hate this. But it was essentially an unwritten law in first century Israel at that time that Jewish men did not publicly speak to women. It was practically mandatory for rabbis, religious rulers, Pharisees, priests, Sadducees, etc. The rabbis were not even allowed to speak to their wives in public or their sisters or their daughters. The only exception was they could speak to their mothers. <laughs> now, Philo, I don't particularly like that guy, but he was a famous Jewish philosopher, religious dude who lived in Alexandria or something. He said that women should never leave their homes except to go to the synagogue. You know, when my son was deployed to uh, Afghanistan, he said some, some women had never left their homes. He said, you never, you just didn't see a woman out. And of course, if you did, they were covered from head to toe. And he said, even the, their homes, the windows were way up high to let in light, but so the woman couldn't look out and maybe a man would see her. How'd you like, you know, Jesus changed things for us. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> um, so the only time they were to, he said, the only time was to go to the synagogue. And even when they went to the synagogue, the women were separated. They were segregated from the men. And the daily prayers of the Jewish men, the daily prayers included thanks to God for not having created them as a woman. 
Well, I'm kind of glad God didn't create me as a man. There you go. I'm happy. I'm content being what I am. No gender changes. I'm not going to get off into that, but anyway. <laughs> Furthermore, women were not allowed. Now, this one does get my blood boiling. Women were not allowed to study the scripture, the Torah. Rabbi Eliezer, first century Jewish rabbi, said it would be better for the Torah, the scripture, to be burned than to entrust it to a woman. I don't know where I'd be without the scripture and to study it. And, you know, my dad was kind of of that same mindset. I hate to say it, but um, his parents came from Corinth, Greece, and they had that old mindset, you know, that women didn't need to study. And he always told me from when I was little, he said, you're, I'm not paying for you. If you want to go to college, you're on your own. And he kept to it. <laughs> I wanted to go to college, so I started working as a young child and worked my way through college to show him. But he was so mad about it, he didn't even come to my graduation. But there's a lot of men like that in the world, and that's why he didn't believe in Jesus, okay? That's why I'm so thankful for Jesus. He changed things. Do you remember how he accepted and defended Mary's, Mary of Bethany's desire to learn as she sat at his feet? And uh, that was normally the position of a disciple. So she, she was, we'll talk about her when we get a date for Mary and Martha, but um, he had female disciples. He did. He had a lot of them. Also thinking of our look at Anna, women were not allowed to be a witness in a court of law. They were not, because women, remember when the, when the women told the disciples, the apostles, that Jesus had ridden and, uh, risen and angels told them and all that? And they didn't believe him because they said they were just silly women telling idle tales. Women were not allowed to be a witness. Um, and yet the Lord pre-orchestrated matters so that Anna was both a witness of his identity and the first female to publicly proclaim his arrival. He even called her his prophetess. Well, by initiating a dialogue with Samaritana, Jesus was breaking the cultural sex gender barrier of that day. You see, his concern was the redemption of people, not the rules of men. So he also broke the cultural, social barrier. He was a spiritual teacher. He was a master teacher. He was a rabbi, and yet he was speaking to an immoral woman and even asking a favor from her, a drink. The third man-made barrier that he broke was the Samaritan barrier, which we've kind of talked about. It was really a racist barrier and a religious barrier. So her response to his request was one of great astonishment that he, a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan, for a drink. She said, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And the word she used for dealings speaks of using vessels together. Isn't that interesting? Using vessels, in, 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 that's in the Greek. You see, rabbinic law, not God's law, but rabbinic man's law, forbid Jews to use the same drinking vessel with a Samaritan. You see, I just thought of this. You know how Jesus changed the, the view of Jews about Samaritans when he used that 
story of the Good Samaritan. And now when you think of the word Samaritan, I mean, you think of someone good and wonderful and neighborly and probably gave the guy from his own drinking vessel something to drink, whereas the Levi and the, you know, the priest went right on by. But the Good Samaritan, that's why Samaritans first. You know, you think of good things, don't you? Um, so Christ was even breaking the sipping, sharing barrier. Well, the Lord's response to the woman's shock that he would drink from her vessel was a veiled statement in Hebrew called a mascal. He said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked a drink from him and he would have given you what? Living water. Suddenly there's a total reversal from the original situation. This divine appointment at the well, it began with the woman having the means to alleviate Jesus' thirst. Now, however, he is telling her in this mescal, this veiled statement, that she is actually the thirsty one. And he has the supply. You see how wise and clever... He can take a conversation. This is, he's such a good example to learn how to witness. Like I think of Ray Comfort, how he can take any conversation and turn it to witness to somebody. Um, so very wisely and smoothly, he took a physical conversation into the spiritual realm. In one statement, he told Samaritana everything she needed to know about salvation. He told her what it is, the gift of God, and spiritual living water, it's both, gift of God and living water. And he told her who controls it, he does. And he told her how to get it. How, does, how would she get it? Ask, <laughs> ask of him. Well, we next note her growing respect for him. In her initial statement, she spoke of him as a Jew. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, you know, for a drink? Now, how does she address him? Sir, which is a term of respect. She's still thinking, however, in physical terms. She says, sir, thou hast, or I'll, I'll do it this way, you have, so it's better, easier to understand, you have nothing with which to draw water. And the well is very deep, so where are you going to get this living water that you're talking about? That's paraphrased. She's thinking of literal water, isn't she? Now, in that day, they would use the term living water to refer to moving water, such as a brook or a waterfall. That was like living water. Now, since, since that kind of living water is much fresher than well water, she's asking where she can get such water. As she politely mentioned, you know, you don't have anything to draw with, so how are you going to get this living water? She's really a very open woman, uh, very transparent, and, and very engaging. You kind of can't help but like her when you get to the end of this thing. I guess a lot of men liked her too, didn't they? Well, <laughs> without waiting for his answer, she doesn't wait. She says, well, how are you going to get it? You don't have anything to draw. She doesn't wait for him to answer. She then asks him a rhetorical question. Did he consider himself to be greater than our father Jacob? See, their father was Jacob. You know, Samaritans all came, you know, from Jacob. Jacob was their father just as the Jews' father, patriarch. Uh, she said, do you think yourself greater than our father Jacob, 
whose well has supplied water not only for him way back then and his family, but all his descendants and cattle all these many, many years. And you've got something, you think you're better than him? And it's rhetorical because what does she expect him to say? She fully expects him to humbly answer her and say, of course I'm not greater than Jacob, the great patriarch Jacob. Of course not. I'm not saying that at all. And then go on to explain what he is saying. But to her astonishment, what he actually says is, yes, I am greater than Jacob. He says, whosoever drinks of this water, and he's pointing to Jacob's well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water I shall give him shall what? Never thirst. That's a double negative in the Greek. You know what it means? Never, no, never, never, never. It really is strong. They'll never thirst again, meaning spiritually. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. With this beautiful appeal to her inner thirst. You think that woman was thirsty? <laughs> in her soul? He was not only offering her, but he was offering all of us, all humanity, his permanently satisfying living water. Everlasting life through the Holy Spirit, which is infinitely superior to the physical water of Jacob's well, obviously, or any other earthly water supply. Our well just went out. It's so funny. I'm studying all about this well and water, and our and it's really funny. It's not funny, but my husband. I heard him on the phone the day before talking to a man that he hadn't talked to for a long time, and he, I don't know why they were on the subject of the of well, but he said, "Oh yeah, we got a wonderful well. It's like 210 feet deep. It's really and it's spring fed. It is a wonderful well." And um, and he said, "Yeah, it's been amazing." And the next day, <laughs> it went out. And the man that came to fix it, he wanted all the paperwork because he said, this is the oldest working well I have ever seen. It has been there working since 1982. I mean, how can you get a well that lasts that long? You know, now they purposely give you a motor or whatever that will only last five years, so you have to go get a new one. But that was a long, I don't know how I got into that because we're talking about wells. Well, well, well. Anyway, um. And it is delicious. It is delicious water. We have, we have living water. Don't you guys too? Do you have living water? Good well. They're our neighbors. Um, so as he all often did, he, he used the physical realm to illustrate spiritual truth. Physical water, you know, you have to have, you, you're going to get thirsty again, right? You drink that delicious spring-fed water and a little while later, and plus we should drink more water than we all do, but not, except for Barbie. Barbie drinks water all day long. I would be living in the bathroom. But that's good for you. It's good. You know, sometimes we get sick because we dehydrate, especially as you get older. I'm just getting off the subject, aren't I? <laughs> but when you drink physical water, you thirst again, and you have to drink again. But those who drink from his water, what? Never, shall never, never, ever, ever, ever thirst again, um, because it will spring up into everlasting life. I have a question. How long is everlasting? Ever. Lasting, that means, if he gives you everlasting, does that mean it's forever? How can you say everlasting is only temporary depend on what you do, and you might lose it? Uh-uh-uh, everlasting is everlasting. If he promises he gives you everlasting life, he has given you everlasting life. It's not up to you. It was up to what he did on the cross. 
but she still didn't grasp it. Um, and uh, the reason is there were four stumbling blocks, we could call them, that were obstructing her, her understanding of spiritual truths. Number one, the first one was his humanity. And you have to admit, that'd be pretty difficult to look at, just like looking at a 48-year-old baby's face and say it's God, to look at a man, a Jewish man, you know, sitting on a well and think he's God. You know, that's really, so his humanity was always a stumbling block. She saw him as a Jewish man and even respectfully addressed him three times as sir. But she did not believe that he could access the eternal living water that he was offering her, much less be the source of that eternal water. Second stumbling block was the physical concerns of her life, and this is evidenced by her follow-up request. She says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. What is she thinking about there? Well, she's thinking about her daily one-mile trek out to the well. I don't know, maybe sometime, maybe they made two, maybe they had to get water in the morning and water at night. But that was a mile-round trip and half a mile with a full water pot. You know, you'd want to give up that little chore every day too, wouldn't you? Especially since you didn't get to fellowship with the other women and you had to do it all alone. So freedom from that burden would be wonderful. So she kind of jokingly asks to have access to this magical <laughs> never thirst again water. But at least she's asking him for something, right? And so that's a step in the right direction. Her third stumbling block had to do with what she thought was his lack of resources. To her thinking, he was powerless to even give her the physical water out of Jacob's well because he didn't have anything to draw it up with. So for him to provide some mysterious everlasting living water was even more impossible. But her fourth and most significant stumbling block was what? You see it up there. It was her spiritual condition. She knew about the depth of Jacob's well, but she did not realize that Jesus wanted her to think about the depth of her need spiritually, the deep need of her soul. It was time for her to face the truth of her lost spiritual condition. But to get there, it was her turn to break a barrier. You see, he had taken care of breaking down the first four barriers that we talked about between her, him and her. He broke those down, the sex barrier, the social barrier, the, you know, racial barrier, all those. But she was the one who needed to deal with the sin barrier. The Lord doesn't give his everlasting life, his eternal life, without first dealing with what issue? Sin. That's why if somebody says, just come to Jesus as you are and accept him and you'll be fine. Just, you know, say this prayer. No, no, no. What comes first? You have to deal with it. You have to repent of your sin. That we have a sin problem. And the moment Samaritana showed a willingness to accept the gift of his living water, he addressed the issue that caused that void in her heart that no matter how hard she tried, no human relationship or religious practice, which she'll bring up in a minute, or any amount of riches, no religion, no relationship, no riches can fill. Everybody has a void in their heart, don't they? An emptiness. 
and they try to fill it with something, uh, and that, that void is caused by sin. And the only one who can, sin is the death sentence we all face and we all need to deal with first before we can then drink freely from his living water, be born again by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So she needed to deal with this issue. And so when he says to her, go, call thy husband and come hither, he is addressing the sin barrier between him and her, between God and man or woman. And with the word go, he is speaking to her conscience because she's to go and deal with the sin in her life. Remember, she's living with a guy who's not her husband. He's somebody else's husband. And when he says, and come hither, come back, after you go and deal with your sin as you come back, he is speaking to her heart. He was saying, when you repent of your sin, then come back to me for the cleansing that I can give you. Now, although she had only talked to Jesus probably just a matter of minutes, this didn't take long conversations. It was already, you know, pretty quick here. She immediately, and this is what I like about her, she immediately and transparently confessed to him what? I have no husband. I've had my fill of them. <laughs> and what does he say? He says, thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou ha now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. So he commends her for her conf confession, her openness, her transparency. The husband he told her to fetch was non-existent. She had either five ex-husbands or five dead husbands. And I'd be really worried if I was husband number five, wouldn't you, about her cooking. <laughs> Something wrong with that woman's cooking. But the man she was currently with wasn't her husband. So he commends her for her honesty. And in doing so, what is he also revealing? His omniscience. He'd never been to Sychar. She, she would have known because it's a little village. You know how many Samaritans are left in the world today? A thousand, that's all. And, and at this time, there weren't very many in sidecar in the, in the village of Drunken. <laughs> um, so she knew everybody in town. If he had ever arrived in town with his 12 disciples, they would have known about it, right? She'd never seen him before. So how does he know all about me? <laughs> He's revealing his omniscience. So in total, Samaritana had six men in her life, five ex-husbands, the man she's living with. Six is the biblical number for what? Man, for humanity, the flesh, which man was made on the sixth day. She had been living a carnal life, as the Spirit conveys to us through John by using the number six several times in this narrative. What time did this meeting take place? What did John tell us? What hour was it? It was the sixth hour. The Samaritan woman's life was like the six clay vessels at that Cana wedding when they were empty of wine. And that had just happened. This is John 4. That had just happened in John chapter 2. When the wine was gone out of those clay vessels, you know, there was water in them, but the joy was gone. The wine symbolized joy. All the joy was gone out of this woman after six men. <laughs> However, the good news is that she had just met the seventh man. 
in her life. And what does seven symbolize in the scripture? Perfection, completeness. And as time was ticking toward the seventh hour, he was working another miracle. He was about to fill an empty human clay pot, a vessel, to the brim with something far better than the temporary joy of wine. He was going to fill her to overflowing with what? His living water, which is the source of eternal joy. Well, I have to keep saying well because it ties right in. The woman was so astonished by her knowledge of him that she said, Sir, I perceive that thou art a what? Prophet. Now, by using the term prophet, she is admitting the truth of what he said about her. You have no husband. You've had five. You're living with the sixth guy who isn't your husband. When he confronted her about her sin, she finally understood that he was speaking in spiritual terms. But have you ever noticed where people will tend to do something when you touch on the sore spot of their sin? What do they try to do? Change the subject. All of a sudden, it's, uh, well, who did Cain marry? <laughs> and do you really believe that Jonah was in the whale of a belly for three days? I mean, they'll change. It's called diversion, is they don't want to talk about their sin. She was uncomfortable, so she purposely tried to steer the conversation in a different direction. She brought up something that had absolutely nothing to do with her lifestyle. It was just too painful to talk about her past and her current adultery, so she changed the subject. Apparently, she thought, since he must be a prophet because he knows all about me, he could settle an issue that had been um, dividing the Samaritans and the Jews for a long time, which was about the right place to worship. You see how she changed the subject from her sin to where do we worship? And uh, rather than asking how to rightly worship God, she asked where we should worship him. And I'm going to skip all that details about, you know, whether it should be Mount Gerizim, which is where the, the Samaritans worship God, or the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, of course, to her, you know, it doesn't really matter, um, but the Jews are right. <laughs> uh, but you worship God in what? In spirit and in truth. Um, but she tried, tried to change the subject. His answer to her question on that matter, however, took her to a higher level. He keeps lifting her up one step at a time. He drew her mind away from thoughts about a place, where do we worship, to a person. He took her from talking about our fathers to the father. Samaritana needed to know God the son so she could rightly worship God the Father. You see, people who say they worship God the Father but don't know the Son aren't worshiping the true God the Father, are they? Because they're one and the same, and he came to reveal the Father. And that's a whole other story, but it's the truth. A lot of people think they worship God, but they're not worshiping God if they don't worship his Son. And she was advancing. Okay, she's advancing slowly but surely in that direction because now she thinks about the man on the well that he is sounding a lot like she would expect if the Messiah came, that the Messiah would talk. I got, okay, look at that. There we go. <gasps> look at that. 
So she says to him, I know that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming, and when he does, he will tell us all things. That tells us that hearing Jesus speak about living water, about her sin, about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, all these things were beginning to cause her to really wonder about his identity. His words were piercing her heart and her mind and her soul. So she broached the subject of the coming Messiah. So in just a, a brief conversation with Jesus, she has advanced very quickly from referring to him as a Jew to a sir to a prophet, and now she's thinking in terms of Messiah the Christ, the anointed one. Now, in her final statement with Jesus at the well, we discover that the three things she believed about the Messiah were all correct. She believed God's promise of a Messiah was true. She believed he was coming soon. And she believed that he would know all things, that he would have supreme knowledge. He will tell us all things. So you see, her messianic beliefs were correct. But correct knowledge about Jesus does not save someone. A lot of people have correct knowledge about him in, up in their head, you know. But you have to move that head knowledge down to the heart, 18 inches. Um, she didn't have a heart commitment to obey God and to repent of her sin. Her faith was head knowledge only at this time. It had not affected her life, do you think? No. However, the seventh time, the polite, barrier-breaking Jewish rabbi prophet, the seventh man in this spiritually empty woman's life, the seventh time he spoke to her, his words not only drastically affected her life on earth, they affected her eternal destiny. Now this is interesting. For the very first time, in recorded scripture, Jesus himself, out of his own mouth, revealed his identity as the Christ. Now, others have said he's the Christ, the Lamb of God, you know, which came to take away the sins of the world. But this is the first time he has told someone himself that he is the Christ. Referring to her statement about the coming Messiah, what does he say? He says, I that speak unto thee am he, verse 26. So at the very time that the woman expressed her desire for the Messiah to come, he told her, he's here. He is, he is me, the one speaking to you. And you know what? This statement is even bolder than it looks. Because if you look at your Bibles, I hope your Bibles are rightly written, that pronoun he is in italics, which means it's not in the original. Any word in italics means it's not in the original manuscript, the original Greek. So he is really saying to her, 
he's not only pronouncing his identity as Messiah, but also as the great I am of the Old Testament. He basically is saying, I that speak unto thee am. I am. You know, John, the Gospel of John is full of I ams. I am the resurrection and life. I am the bread of life. I am the, uh, what is it? I can't think of the door and the what? The way, the truth, and the life, all those I am's, there's even more in there. This is another one. And remember when they all came to arrest him and they said, you know, who are you? He said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. You know what he said? I am. And they all tumbled backward. All of them tumbled backward. He says, I am a lot in the Gospel of John. So he's telling her he is both Messiah and who else? Yahweh. God, that's amazing. And he's telling it to who? The lowest of the lowest. And it likely took a few seconds to process his claim, yeah. <laughs> but by the work of God's grace in her heart, this lonely, sin-sick, spiritually thirsty woman knew that his revelation was true. How did she know? She knew it by the Spirit's work in her, by Christ's tone, probably by his manner, his eyes, his lack of any prejudice whatsoever toward her, by his uncanny knowledge of all the intimate details of her life. She knew that the one sitting right in front of her, calmly, on Jacob's well, was the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Just as Anna knew, right? And as John the Baptist in the womb knew, and as I knew, back in 1971 or two, wherever it was, whenever it was, I can't remember, but it was Good, good Friday. <laughs> I got saved on, but I really believe it's Good Thursday that it got crucified. But we still call it Good Friday, right? Because all of them days are good. Anyway, um, I don't know how I knew when those people were witnessing to me that all of a sudden what they were saying about Jesus was true. Do you know how that happens? I don't know, because one minute I was in denial and arguing, and the next minute I'm saved. <laughs> she, that woman used a word of scripture, and it pierced my heart, and I just, I said, okay, I want Jesus. And I've never regretted it, and I've never doubted it, and I, how does that work? It's a miracle, isn't it? So she knew what he had just claimed was true. In a matter of merely minutes, he had taken Samaritana from a physical thirst on his part to a spiritual life on her part. How do we know? How do we know she was saved? Well, we know because of what she does next. She immediately leaves the well. And what else does she leave? <laughs> she, Yes, she leaves her water pot, and that's the whole reason she went to the well in the first place, right? But she uh, leaves her water pot, and she, she, I mean, she hightails it back to Sychar to tell others about the man who just claimed to be the Christ. And she added, and he must be. This is the second must in this story, remember? He must needs go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment. She goes and she tells it, he must be. Because he just told me everything about me. He, isn't it exciting that she went to tell the very people who scorned her 
Isn't that wonderful? That shows a changed life. If you're in Christ, you're a new creature. All of a sudden, she's a new creature. She doesn't care if they reject her. She's got news to tell. It's interesting that John does include the fact that she left her water pot. Um, because why'd she leave it? Well, she had received something far better than well water. She had received salvation from the well of living water. Leaving her water pot symbolizes leaving behind her old life. She was now God's vessel. And she was overflowing with living water as a result of her new faith in him. Plus, leaving the vessel demonstrated her intention to, what, return. She was going to come back to the well to hear more. Although this woman was shunned, there's my paper airplane again. Um, although she was shunned by the people of her small town, her first burning desire after believing in Christ was to tell them about him. That is so nice. What was your first burning desire after you got saved? I couldn't wait to run home and tell my parents. I thought I'd lost my mind, but I had to tell them anyway. She had come face to face with the Savior of life-giving water, and all she wanted to do was tell others about him, even those who had scorned her and given her the cold shoulder, etc. So she is forever a great example of a changed life and a wonderful witness for the one who changed her life. And she is the first witness of Christ to the Samaritans. She is an example of evangelism. She had just had the greatest example of evangelism at the well, and now she's an evangelist, and she goes to them. She's the first witness of Jesus to non-Jews. Some commentators say that she is the first Gentile convert in Christ's ministry. You know, you have to be careful with Gentile because she's a mixture of Jewish and Gentile, but she's the first non-Jewish convert. Samaritana. Now, since seven in scripture represents, I'm almost done, um, perfection and completion, it is interesting that the woman's invitation statement to her fellow people in Sychar, come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did, is not this the Christ, was her seventh and final time that she spoke in the narrative. His seventh time was revealing I am, her seventh time, is this invitation statement, come see this man who must be the Christ. She had spoken six times to Jesus in the flesh, but her seventh statement shows us that she is now complete in Christ. She not only acknowledged her sin when she said, he has shown me all things that ever I did, Um, but she also spoke of his omniscience when she said, he told me all things. And she then invited them to come and see him for themselves. He was the seventh man in her life. She was told to go get her husband, right? And return with him. But she did a lot better than that. She returned with the whole village. And by then, think about it, by then, what time was it? It was the seventh hour. She did a whole lot better than the disciples. Who did they return with? Nada. Nobody. They went into the city full of drunken psychars. 
<laughs> Samaritans and came back with nobody. In fact, they probably didn't even talk to anybody. They probably pointed at the fish and the loaves and, and then very carefully paid the money, you know, didn't want to touch anybody. Came back with no one. She comes back with the whole village. What, a, what an example. So this account should be a great encouragement to those who think they have sinned too greatly for God to use them. Um, or to, to save them, much less to use them. The woman, she didn't, again, kind of like Anna, she didn't focus on her past. She simply got busy telling others about Jesus. She, do you think she was a skilled teacher? Do you think she had hidden the, the word of God in her heart like Anna? No, she just barely knew the Pentateuch, probably. Um, and she certainly was not a trained theologian, but she knew how to invite others to come and meet the Savior. Her message was so simple, wasn't it? She told them what Jesus did for her and then urged them to come meet him themselves. Anybody can do that. You could say, you could tell somebody what he did for you, what he did for me, and then say, well, why don't you come and meet him yourself? Just come and see. Come and see. After spending two days with Jesus, and it does tell us he spent two days, you know, um, he went into the village, his his poor disciples, they were probably all worried about germs, but they stayed there for two days. And after two days, the Sychar Samaritans said this, we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ. And then what did they say? The Savior of the world. Whew, amazing. This is the very first time any people acknowledged that Jesus was the Savior of the world. First time. And they are not Jewish. You see, his acceptance by Samaritans, half Jewish, half Gentile, was a preview of the church, which consists of what? Jews? Samaritans, Gentiles. And you know, it does say in scripture, this might be stretching it, but a day is with the Lord as a thousand years. It has now been roughly two days that he has spent with his church. Did you realize that in the Old Testament there are three significant well encounters with seven common elements to it, to them? And this is where I'll end. All right. The first well encounter was between Abraham's servant, Eliezer, and uh, Rebekah. Remember, Abraham sent his faithful servant to find a wife for Isaac. And they met at the well. Rebekah became Isaac's wife. The second well encounter was between Jacob and Rachel, who became his future wife. And the third well encounter in scripture was when Moses met his future wife. What was her name? Zipporah. Now, what are the seven common elements? Well, first of all, number one, a godly man traveled from a distant land, whether that was Eliezer, Jacob, or Moses. He arrived in that distant land at a well. Soon, a woman comes to draw water from that well. The man initiates a conversation with her, during which 
he tells her who he is. She then returns to her people to tell them what the man at the well told her. The man is then invited and introduced to the woman's people. The woman becomes the bride of a bridegroom. Now these three Old Testament uh, well encounters serve to picture a more significant fourth well encounter that relates to God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. And it is the well encounter that we just got finished discussing. It was the encounter of Christ and a woman who represented his bride, the church, to this thirsty, confused, sinful woman, he first identifies himself. She's both Jewish and Gentile, true of the church. Appropriately, her fellow Samaritan townspeople were the first ever to declare Jesus as the savior of the world. So in this beautiful episode, we again find the same seven elements in the Old Testament well encounters. Number one, the God-man traveled a far distant, from a far distant land because he had a must appointment at a well. He arrived at a well. A woman came to draw water. He initiated a conversation. Isn't it always because he sought us first? He initiated a conversation during which he told her who he was. Messiah and I am. The woman shares the news of him with others, even those who had scorned her. He's invited and introduced to the, women's, the woman's people. And the woman and her people become believers in him. Subsequently, they become the bride of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that in your eyes, no one is beyond redemption, no matter how bankrupt our lives might be. Thank you for valuing us enough to actively seek us. You're the one who seeks us. It's not the other way around. And for dismissing all the man-made barriers that divide people. You came to seek and to save the lost, and that includes absolutely everyone. And Father, I would dare say there's someone here today, or maybe several, who feel that she just has too much baggage for you to love and forgive her. Perhaps she has searched for years to find acceptance and love in relationships or in religion or even in riches, but she still feels empty and unfulfilled and joyless, spiritually thirsty. So I pray, Lord, that together with other believers in this room, today would be the day of her salvation, that she would finally come face to face with the perfect God-man, confessing before him her sin and her need for the Savior. For we know by our own experience with him that he will accept her with his unconditional love and his grace and forever forgiving her past and quenching her spiritual thirst and providing her with the living water unto eternal life. So I pray today that someone will leave her water pot behind her old life because 
you today will fill her to the brim with the joy of knowing that she is saved by grace through faith in you. And it's in your name we do ask. Amen. <laughs>